Hello, friends. Welcome to the trailer for The Road Taken with C.T. and Bayo. I'm Bayo. And I'm C.T. We've embarked on a massive world tour and are excited to experience all the thrills and boredom that entails. To help us process our own experiences along the way, we'll be having conversations with peers, idols, and maybe a rando or two. The Road Taken with C.T. and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network on all podcast platforms. Hey, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. Thanks for listening to Black on the Air. I haven't talked to you guys in a while. It's been a while. I've done a couple of live broadcasts. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in Riverside, which is a lot of fun. And George Will in Los Angeles. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I mean, George Will in Los Angeles, that was an amazing, amazing thing to happen, you know. But a lot of people showed up for that. It was an interesting conversation. I was happy to have it um, on my podcast. It's It's interesting that there are... It's funny how there there is this anti-Trump conservative movement happening right now that's kind of, I guess, based over in conservatism more than republicanism, something that I'm definitely going to follow this year, and I'll keep you guys up on. But, of course, I'm fascinated by it. Remember I had Rick Wright on this podcast who was amazing. He was like – he was a, a barn burner. He was like <laughs> burning the whole Republican establishment down um about this and it's interesting how divisive trump is in his own party this is fascinating you know so um i'm fascinated by that um and i um it's something that i want to do more of on the show today we have jamel hill i'm so excited jamel is somebody i've been following for a long time you know she's a sports broadcaster journalist she was an espn for a long time sports reporters was where i first saw her she's on my show the nightly show too and uh she has her own podcast now. She writes for The Atlantic, and we had a, a real good conversation recently just about her career and a lot of issues and stuff. Jamel is awesome, so I hope you enjoyed it. Guys, I haven't waited in a while. I was like, there's so much stuff going on. What are we going to talk about? I think the last time I weighed in was before I think they decided to impeach Trump, I think. <laughs> I think it's been that long. So, yes, finally, thank you. I haven't had a chance to say that. It's about time. Um, and at the same time, you know, even though I say that, and I know a lot of people, we want to get rid of Trump and everything, it really does not make me happy to impeach a president. It actually doesn't, you know, and, and I know it sounds ridiculous because you know how I feel about Trump and everything, but it actually doesn't make me happy, you know. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I do want to talk about this specifically about impeachment um, and especially the Trump. And one of my things about Trump, I just feel this man is just unfit to be president, period for a number of reasons, you know. And um, the way that I'm going to follow this impeachment, um, I wasn't on board with a lot of early attempts to impeach the president. I felt, you know, in the enthusiasm to get rid of Trump or whatever, everything's being thrown at the wall. And I just don't think that's why we should impeach a president, just because we don't like him or we, dis or we disagree, right? But I tell you um, who is wiser about all of this than I am is Nancy Pelosi. I'm a huge fan of Nancy Pelosi. As you know, I've had her on my podcast. She's on my show. I got to meet her and her husband at the time. She's not only just a great human being, I've always believed in Pelosi. I've been a fan of hers for years, you know, when she first became speaker. She's gone under not only attacks from opponents, but attacks from her own side. You know, in fact, people kind of left her out for dead a couple of years ago before she regained the speakership. You know, they were kind of ridiculing her, saying she was out of touch and all this kind of thing. Let me tell you something. 
Nancy Pelosi is very smart, okay? She knows what the fuck she's doing. Trust me on this. You may disagree with her on this and that. Nancy Pelosi knows what the fuck she's doing. And I believe, and maybe I'm alone in saying this, and maybe, you know, it's my romantic view of some politicians, which I don't have, by the way. I don't have a high opinion of a lot of politicians. But from what I know about Pelosi, I believe that she is putting country first in this over her party. And I do believe, trust me, as a Democratic Party, yes, they're doing this as a party and they want to get this person out because he's a Republican. But I honestly believe that Nancy will put country over party in this. And I say, follow Pelosi. If you're ever confused about something, you not know what to do, just follow her. Just take her lead on this. I think we will be in good hands. Um, I've always, I always hated the jokes about her and all that kind of stuff. I always thought she was kind of uh, belittled, you know, and never really taken seriously for the gravitas she has and the, the institutional knowledge she has about that body she governs and the savvy she has in the way in which she governs it, you know. And I think now maybe she'll get the respect even from her own people <laughs> in terms of what she's actually doing. Follow Pelosi. She'll lead us to the promised land. Now, whether or not we... Here's the thing. Remember I've said, I hate to make this prediction, but I think Trump is going to get reelected. You know, I've been saying that based on the economy. And I've just been feeling differently later, guys. And I'm having a little hope now that, you know, and some of this, of course, depends on who runs against him. But Trump, in my mind, is doing all he can to ruin his re-election chances. Thank you so much. He is... He is, he's so unfit in so many ways. And he's so, you know, the stable genius is such an unstable, you know, genius. Because <laughs> he, he is a genius in his instability, you know. I would give him that. Um, I believe that, you know, I've, I've always felt it would be tough to defeat a president that has this type of economy. But now I believe that, the Democrats may not have to beat Trump, that Trump may end up beating himself. Um, and one of the reasons is how he will divide his own party. And this is going to be the key to the Democrats getting the White House, I believe. And I think this is going to be the story that's going to be happening in this next year. It's not going to be an insurgent um, opponent. I don't know if we have that. I think the closest we have maybe is Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know if on a national, you know, on a primary level, I think she has a lot of momentum and spirit and all that stuff. On a national level, I don't know yet. We'll see. We'll have to wait and see how that happens. I don't know if Joe Biden is is the person either. I just I don't even know if he can if he can hold up right now. His gaffes are just out of control. I don't even know what to say about it. You know. Um, this whole Ukraine thing is is kind of ridiculous too in the way he's intertwined in it, but I don't like his the way he kind of makes this like uh I don't know, it's a it's a bar fight he's involved in, you know, where the way he calls out Trump. You didn't have to do that crap, you know. It's like, you know, we all we already hate Trump. You don't have to act like you're mad at him, you know. You know, somebody needs to have vision and leadership, all that stuff. But I've I honestly am thinking that shit is going to be irrelevant 
once we get to the finish line. As long as we don't have somebody who fucks it up. You know, that would be a different thing. And one of the big areas where Trump is dividing his own party right now is Syria. I mean, it's amazing to me that Trump abandons the Kurds right now. I mean, this is the reason why it's amazing to me. Let me put this in. It's not my agreement or disagreement with the policy. The foreign policy right now, there's so much nuance going on, but it's clear that the Kurds were on the side of defeating ISIS with America and that Israel, who, you know, Trump is considering several big buddies with them, they know how important that relationship is for other reasons as well. And we know what the threat Turkey is right now in all of this as well. There's a lot of stuff going on here. But at this time in history, abandoning the Kurds, I don't think anybody would suggest doing that. Look, I was not happy when Obama did not follow up on his red line pledge with Syria when they used chemical weapons, for Christ's sakes. I thought that was a huge mistake. The Republicans were actually right about Russia uh, swooping into that void that was created. They're absolutely right about it. I thought it was a big mistake by Obama. He may have thought so, too. This is one of those types of mistakes, but maybe on an even bigger scale. Uh, who knows what's going to happen as a result of this? And as I'm recording this um, on Yom Kippur, actually, and I'm recording this happy Yom Kippur, um, I'm sure by the time you hear it, who knows what events may have tr transpired. So I'm telling you this now as it's just happening. This may be the first event um, that will get Trump out of office. Now, people have been focusing on his personality and his lying and all that. And remember I said, no, that's not going to matter. People like him because of this. This is the first thing I'm telling you that is truly divisive in terms of his re-election, truly divisive, because not only do most people think it's a wrong thing to do, but that's different. I think this is actually dividing his support. I really do. And I think what might happen, this is, <laughs> I don't know why I'm predicting all these things. I think you might see a lot of Republicans stay home and maybe in key states. We'll see. Trump is such an asshole, you guys. I can't see people, when push comes to shove in some of these, being so enthusiastic for him. Even people that are happy that he's done things that they like, you know. But we'll see. This is my prediction. And as I said before, when talking about Trump, when I said, um, I believe he's an existential threat to the safety and security of the free world. That's what I honestly think about Trump in a nutshell. And this is one of those examples of it. The other was his callous treatment of NATO and his not realizing how important the NATO allies are while he's jerking off Putin right in front of them. And now, um, and jerking off in a good way, not a bad way. Right. <laughs> right. Not jerking off metaphorically, but actually jerking him off. Right. <laughs> and now this situation, Oh God, it's such a mess. So we'll see. We'll see if my prediction is correct. Trump is going to beat himself. That's what I am now saying, that Democrats aren't going to beat Trump. Trump's going to beat himself. Whew. All right, so that's all I have on that. Um, I'll, there's a lot of other things going on, and I'll weigh in in the weeks to come. But, guys, it's almost basketball season. I'm going to have a lot of Lakers stuff to talk about soon, too. So people that don't like basketball, sorry. But the Lakers are coming, man. I'm very excited about this. I got a beef with Bill Simmons. It's going to be in another one of the ringer platforms that we're going to do, which is really kind of fun. And uh, so I'm very excited about that. And uh, I'm speaking of sports, we got Jamel Hill coming up. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. It's really, really a wide-ranging conversation. She's awesome. So let's do that. 
All right, welcome back. Very excited, you guys. A very special guest on Black and Air. One of my favorite people. I always look forward to seeing her on television, but now I see her on the page, which is kind of exciting. She's a contributor to The Atlantic right now, but you guys know her from ESPN. And right now, Jamel Hill is unbothered, <laughs> but she's in my studio on Black and Air. Jamel Hill, welcome to Black on the Air. I really appreciate being here. You also are one of my um, favorite people. Oh, I was so nice. I was so shocked. Um, when I did your your late night show. Yeah, the nightly show. Was yeah, so the fun nightly show. It was a lot of fun. I was super shocked ESPN approved it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that was back when I was still with it them. It was before the storm clouds. It was before right. the storm yeah. clouds. And they're usually very careful uh-huh. about letting their um, personalities appear on certain things. I didn't and, even think about that. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally expected a no. And right. I was very surprised that they said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And I made it a point to curse on your show because yeah. <laughs> I never got to curse on television That's before. So funny. And I was like, oh, I'm getting the F-bomb off. It was like, also, it's happening. Cursing is the least offensive thing you could do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of censorship and what people want to hear from you. And ESPN, of course, being a Disney-owned company now, that the world has changed so much since it first came on the scene, of course. Yeah, you know? it, it's changed a lot. And I guess that was part of why I was so surprised yeah. because even though— yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously your show had it had a political bent in that you discussed mm-hmm. politics. Right. That's why I was so surprised. It really didn't have anything to do with the language. Yeah. But it was just because it's a political show. And, you know, who knows, the world might have ended if one of their anchors goes yes. on your show. And suddenly people might get a sense of what their political opinion might be. Yeah. And it's funny because you're kind of in that crosshairs of politics and sports. And that you're one of those rare people that you inhabit both of those. And you seem to do it kind of effortlessly. Were you always interested in both of those things or mainly sports when you were younger? I was interested in primarily sports. Uh-huh. Um, the problem is that the politics uh, kept interfering. Mm. And I know that it's very common or a common refrain that you hear now, especially from sports fans. Mm -hmm. I feel like political junkies or people who follow politics, you know, they don't say things like, I don't want any sports in my politics. Like, they don't say that. Sports fans, however, commonly say, I don't want any politics in my sports. And it's absurd because sports is just inherently political. Mm -hmm. The example I often use is, Okay, when you go to that arena, that arena is funded by taxpayer money. That Mm -hmm. means there had to be a vote. So as soon as you step inside an arena and buy a ticket, you're participating in a political process. Or if you want a team to come to your city, it's always been intertwined. And it's unfortunate, but uh, we have a a lot of people who throw everything in the Mm -hmm. political crockpot. Like, everything is not politics. Like, to me, racism is not politics. Racism is a morality issue. Gender is not politics. That's a morality issue. So, but everybody wants to shove it into the politics bin. It's like, yeah, all that stuff doesn't belong, right? So um, when people say, I don't want politics mixing with sports, it's sort of like, it's a really lazy trope because what they don't want is politics they don't agree with mixing with their sports. Yeah, I think a lot of that is true. And I think the public's appetite for certain things changes over the years, too. You know, there used to be a time when, I mean, sometimes opinions could creep in. I mean, Howard Cosell was a big advocate of Muhammad Ali. No one ever thought he shouldn't be doing Wide World of Sports you know, when he was doing that, I never heard a criticism of Cosell for doing that, you know. No, that's um, a that's a great point. And yeah. I think we've seen throughout uh, sports history in particular, there there have been commentators like him who have become part of the political story. Right. But I don't know if, is it the people that change or sensibilities that change or is it the tone that's set? Mm. Because I don't remember having, and this is, uh, you know, I, I'm sure people will say, oh, 
this is just another person mm -hmm. uh, trying to, um, you know, got up Barack Obama. <laughs> but I didn't have a whole lot of do sports belong in politics conversations yeah, with Barack you, you're Obama. Not, you're not on there as a political advocate. For, no. For you, I think culture is a better word than politics. You're right. Yeah. You know, that's a more fitting yeah, word. Yeah, you're not like some political hack trying to <laughs> right. keep the Democratic Party. No. Office. No. No, not at all. But, no, you're keeping it real with your, your opinions on culture. Correct. Right? Yeah. And then once we saw a shift in, um, in the administration, yeah. then all of a sudden, uh, as that shift was happening, it became, oh, we don't want— you know, politics and mm -hmm. we're rejecting this. And maybe some of it is the fact that black athletes in particular started to be more vocal mm. about their political opinions because of the things happening in the country mm -hmm. as a result of the administration. So I don't know what was the chicken or what was the egg, but during most of my career at ESPN, sports, the sports and politics conundrum was not there. It was just yeah. like, oh, OK, if there's some politics there, you cover it, you talk about it and then that's it. And then um, something changed. It kind of reared its ugly head at mm -hmm. a certain time. How did you get into the sport? Did, did you play sports in, I think you played in college, right? No, I wish. Or you played oh, in high God, school? Oh, God, Larry, I wish I were that good. <laughs> what did you play? Because you did play some sports. I did. Right? I played right. in high school. Um, I was I was the kind of quintessential neighborhood tomboy. Uh -huh. And Were you a sports nerd? Is that a good I was. I was a sports okay. nerd. And my mother, because um, I was <laughs> raised by. <laughs> no, uh -huh. I was. I was a big tomboy. Well, you have that raspy voice. Yeah, too, the Catholic. Turner. Um, yeah. But yeah, growing up is that I don't remember ever not liking sports. And right. I guess because I had good hand-eye coordination that led to me always wanting to play something involving mm -hmm. a ball. Um, and so... Did you grow up with brothers? No. Who played sports or did anything? not. I'm my mother's only child. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, mm -hmm. my mother's mm -hmm. only child. I don't know how me and sports kind of fell in love with each other, but uh -huh. I watched a lot of sports growing up. A lot of baseball. Baseball was actually my first love. Mm -hmm. And being from Detroit, I was a big Tigers fan. Oh, I'm and sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> but see, kidding. but then it was fine because yeah. the Tigers, I mean, they won the uh, the World Series when I was nine. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in 84. Oh, that's the perfect age for your exactly. team to win, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, that hooks yeah, you, it does. right? That's the perfect age. Yeah. yeah, and so it made me a broader baseball fan in general. So I remember This Week in Baseball and Mel Allen. I used oh, to watch yeah. every Those week. classic, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, clearly I was a kid without a life because if you can spend your entire Saturday watching <laughs> baseball, those games aren't short, you know what right, I'm saying? I know. Um, so, but I still, you know, that was during the time where kids actually went outside. And yeah. so, you know, in the neighborhood and stuff, you know, playing tag, touch football, mm -hmm. tackle football, you know, backflipping, taking, uh, doing backflips off garages. That was like all me. And uh, so it just grew from playing and watching sports. And uh -huh. so I just had kind of a real love for it. So I played fast pitch softball in high school. Uh -huh. Did you have one of those? Because there's there's some uh, journalists, uh, sports journalists. I think sometimes they fall into a couple of categories. But one of the categories is savant. You know, where the type of person they they know all the stats. You know, <laughs> and they're that type. Like Bob Costas has that type of mind. You know, were you the savant or were you more the enthusiast? Where it's like, no, motherfucker, this is who's gonna win. <laughs> you know, um, which category? I, do you I think started you're as the savant because uh -huh. um, a parlor trick that you, my mother uh, again raised by a single mother, and so uh -huh. my mother was dating when I was you know, growing up. And so, um, and she, uh, she actually, she dated a couple like sort of former athletes or whatever. Oh, and wow. so she, they would be super impressed that mm -hmm. I knew that I would be watching the game and would know everybody on the field. Funny, and so they'd man. be like, Hey, can you name who that is? Can you name it? So then it became like a thing. And sure. then I'd be able to tell them kind something yeah. yeah, about, and I didn't really think it was that big of a deal yeah. because, you know, then 
you you know, to follow your sports teams, you also have to read newspapers. So mm-hmm. that's how I fell in love with journalism is that I read the sports section. Oh, wow. And so it kind of collided together. And somehow I figured out that, oh, you can actually write about sports for a living. This is interesting. Yeah. This might be something I want to pursue. Was Mitch Album was he at the yes. at the Free Press? Yeah, I grew days? up reading Mitch Album. Right. So you had one of the best sports writers yeah, that you uh, got to read. Yeah. Mitch Album. And it was a great like newspaper, Detroit is a great newspaper town. It's a two mm-hmm. newspaper town, uh, which is becoming increasingly more rare mm. um, in this country. Yeah, it's but a shame, yeah, yeah, we um, had some good ones here too. In LA. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. One of L.A., one of the great yeah. newspaper towns. But um, yeah, it was it was sort of reading people, you know, like Mitch and Brian Burwell and Terry Foster, like a ton. I can still name every local columnist that I read, mm-hmm. and it was a treat for me when years later, when I was at ESPN, that Mitch and I got to work together doing right. sports reporters. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and so I, he used to love when I said, "Hey, I grew up reading you." <laughs> yeah, he, he appreciated that. Yeah, 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 but Mitch was a game changer. I mean, yeah. he was a columnist who, was. not just a, a, a brilliant writer, but he also created a business model. For yeah. sports columnist, that was pretty lucrative. Yeah, and he was kind of a had a, a lot of morality in his work without moralizing in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, which led to some of his books and that type of thing. Yep. You know, he's out there as an author, all these types of things. Real interesting. It's one of the reasons why I love sports reports. By the way, it's when I first fell in love with Jamel, you know. <laughs> I was like, who is this on sports reporters? You were so great on that show. Yeah, it was. I missed that show because it wasn't an arguing show. No. Really. It was you know, truly a discussion show. Re- but it was smart, too. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that it was set aside as a smart take on this without being erudite or that type of thing. And right. and to date, of all the ESPN shows I ever did, Sports Reporters was the only one I was nervous about doing mm-hmm. because it was an institution. And, yeah. I and for those of you that don't know, Sports Reporters, it was this half-hour I think it was a half-hour Yeah, it was hour, a half-hour show. Where some of the best journalists sat around and they gave their takes in— really almost in prose many times, you know, of how they felt about certain things, their opinions on what was happening. And it was almost like you got to read these columns, you know, that were kind of— Even if you weren't from their cities, you sort of got a—you got the pulse of the nation. Right. And so they had some, you know, regulars that people, I'm sure, uh, might be familiar with if you follow sports, Mike Lupica, Bob Ryan, you know, some of legacy sports writers, Bill Roden, uh, Ralph, the the late uh, Ralph Wiley, who was the first black person I saw, Mm -hmm. I think, on ESPN uh, was him. And so I grew up watching sports reporters. Mm. And um, I remember the first time I did the show, I was super nervous. And it was, I don't know if if you knew that, but I guess to go a little inside sports reporters, but, you know, they used to memorize those parting shots at the sure. end. Oh, instead of having it. There was no teleprompter. Oh, wow. Right. And That's so, pretty good. Actually. Yeah, it is. And yeah. uh, I knew that, you know, going in because they told me, you know, during that week. And I was like, right. I assumed it was. It's going to be on cards, right? You're right. <laughs> exactly. And then, I, and then they're like, no, 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 you memorized it. I was like, what? And so um, I remember doing my first parting shot was about Mike Tyson. Wow. And it was tragically after um, uh, he lost a young child. It was a um, it was a, a treadmill accident oh, that, yeah, that. Yeah, that he lost his um, I think it was his daughter lost his daughter to um, she wound up choking on the on the treadmill, I think, by one of the cores. Mm-hmm. And and I know how people have very polarizing opinions about Mike Tyson. So the parting shot was essentially like, regardless of what you may think, nobody deserves this. Right. And so it's okay to feel some sympathy for Mike Tyson, like kind of in this moment. 
And I think I had to do five takes. <laughs> and I rem- and I believe I was the first one to go, which was worse because I was like, oh, damn, yeah. I'm the first one to go. Yeah. I'm the rookie on the show. Oh, my God. This is horrendous. Were they encouraging? To- they were. Oh, you know, I think the first people I did it with, I think it was Lupica, Bob Ryan, I think, and Roten. And they were super encouraging. Yeah. John Saunders was the host who be- became a good friend Classic of mine. Classic John Saunders. Oh, he was yeah. amazing. Very Such a gentleman on the air. Gentleman, classy, amazing mm-hmm. broadcaster. And, yeah, I mean, I, it, part of it, a lot of it was uh, was nerves. So that when I did that show, that's when I felt like, at least in, in the ESPN Echosphere, I felt like I made it. And did you—well, first, how did you get the job at ESPN? Did— um, what were you doing right before that? Then you went to um, Michigan State. Yep. I'm a Spartan in high school, actually. Damien Spartan. Look so at that. I know Spartan Michigan, is Spartan. Spartan is Spartan. <laughs> okay. So there you go. We got Spartan blood. In there. <laughs> uh, what did you do right after school? And what was your road to ESPN? So I am an outlier in the sense that a lot of people usually wind up changing professions or changing um, what they think is their career goals several times. That mm-hmm. is exceptionally normal. When I was high, in high school, I had the... Um, uh, you know, as fate would have it, I walked into a a newsroom because my high school newspaper in Detroit, the high school newspapers were actually produced at the Detroit Free Press, one of the two professional wow, papers. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, it is cool. They do a monthly insert and they put one page of all the high schools in their newspapers. So I was on my high school writing staff. And the first time I had to go to the Free Press to to for us to put together our paper, I was like, oh, my God, what is this place? And I love it. People were, like, yelling, and it was all this energy. Like, oh, the ink. <sighs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was like a—it was a total overload, yeah. you know, sensory overload for my yeah. brain. And I was hooked. And I knew that I wanted to be a journalist, a sports journalist in particular. And I they had an apprenticeship program at the Free Press. I applied for it and learned about how to be a journalist, uh-huh. was assigned a mentor, learned about the business— and uh, the summer that I got that apprenticeship was the summer that the National Association of Black Journalists was in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so they marched us over there, made me um, become a member at 16 and, wow. and NABJ, for those who don't know. NABJ. NABJ is the largest minority <laughs> yes. journalism That's organization right. in the country, yeah. over 3,000 black journalists. And so having that early foundation mm-hmm. is what gave me the confidence that I could do that. So my goal was to just be a sports writer for newspapers, and that's what I did. You really had a professional mentality very mm-hmm. early on. Yeah, very yeah. early on. When mm-hmm. I went to Michigan State, I worked for the college newspaper. I had five internships in college. Wow. Uh, I graduated When I graduated from Michigan State, my uh, first job out of college was at the News and Observer in Raleigh, and I was covering uh, a lot of women's sports. And, you know, also Vince Carter was— uh, he was a big to him and Antoine Jameson. They yeah. were the Tar Heels of the moment, you sure. know, when I was there. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was a robust time. It's always a robust time for college basketball in the Triangle. So yeah. was there for two years, came back to the free press, covered my alma mater, Michigan State football and basketball for six years. And it was right at the time where Michigan State basketball became a national power. They won the national championship in 2000 when I was covering the beat and they went to four straight final fours and, you know, so I got to write and cover a lot of great things. The mm-hmm. BCS was starting, and it was—that was back when newspapers were spending money, and not just money to cover local teams, but national things. They felt right. like a paper like the Free Press, which was, I mean, at that time, circulation-wise, one of the top 20 papers in the country. Absolutely. They felt like it was important that their writers— established national credibility. So I got to cover my first Olympics in 04. That's fantastic. Yeah, in Greece. From like a local paper, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Oh, I covered every single mm-hmm. um, BCS national title game 
for the first six years of its existence. Yeah. Every single one. Went to the Final Four every year, whether Michigan State was in it or not. Um, it was just certain things that they felt like their mm-hmm. national writer or their writers had to do, establish, again, national credibility. So it gave me this um, training ground of learning how to cover big events. Yeah, and and, and I, as I like to say, you're kind of doing it in the dark. Like, no one knows who you are. Yeah, yet. it was a different time you get then. all this experience before yeah. you really arrive, which is nice. Yes, yeah. and you can make a lot of mistakes. And, Absolutely. You know, you, the stakes aren't as high for no, your mistakes. not right? at all. Right? And my next job after that, I was a, a columnist, um, a sports columnist at the Orlando Sentinel. Mm. And that was my first column job. And I actually never wanted to be a columnist. Uh, I wanted to—my dream job was to work at Sports Illustrated. Wow. Yeah, that was the dream job. And uh, when I was 22, they actually offered me a job, and I turned them down because they—essentially the job would have been— Sports Illustrated offered you a job? They did. They offered me a job, um, but the job essentially would have been me being a glorified fact-checker. And I was—and I I often tell young people this all the time, is that, look, the money will be there. And I know that's really easy coming from somebody who already makes money, Mm -hmm. but the money will be there when you're starting out and laying out your process— you have to think development first. Mm-hmm. And the reality is in Raleigh, I was writing every single day. Um, I had won two awards. Uh, I was getting to tell stories that for somebody my age and with my limited professional experience in the business, you don't get to do. Right. And Sports Illustrated wanted me to come there and check other people's stories. No. And even though they're the big name, and sure— my, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And right. sure, I could— I could rationalize or I can idealize about, okay, well, maybe if I start on the ground floor, eventually I'll write a cover story and I'll move up. And I looked around at the writers they had. That's not how they got them. And it would have been a parallel universe, Jamel Hill, somebody who had decided to do it then. That would have been the way for that Jamel Hill to get into it, but not somebody who had done what you have done up to that point. No, and I think, honestly, it's better. You know, writing is a muscle. Yeah. Gotta you gotta Absolutely. practice it every day. No, nothing beats experience, and it's better for to have Sports Illustrated to be competing for you. <laughs> exactly, because here's right. the other thing: they also wanted me to move to New York City and make forty five thousand dollars. Yeah, so <laughs> that was the other right. thing. <laughs> Unless I was staying in a crack. That's a security deposit. You know what I'm saying? I was like, do you think I should be living in a crack house? Like, even in a crack house, that might have been not enough money. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, it's borderline, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to work at Sports Illustrated and write these long, you know, long-form stories of the human condition in sports. And those jobs and those opportunities were just not that available. But, But you know what was happening is there was a show called Around the Horn where you saw columnists who were suddenly making all this TV money and you saw columnists who were getting the book deals and you saw columnists who were getting the radio shows. Like I said, Mitch Album, you know, this is a dude that wrote one of the most read books of all time in Tuesdays with Maury. He had his own radio show in Detroit. He was on Sports Reporters. So he turned himself into a business. Into a brand. Into a brand. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, maybe I should try column writing because I see all the columnists are the senior writers at the paper. They're making the most money and they're getting all these other opportunities and I was pretty terrible at column writing my first six months. But again, really? yeah. to your point, you can kind of go under the radar Absolutely. and be terrible. And you're you're not as terrible as you think you are. Yes, really. looking back on because it, because no, you, yes, I was just mildly shitty. 
Yeah, I mean, because you have standards, yeah. you you can say that, you know. But the average person can, oh, they're like they'll recognize the spark of talent in there and that type of thing. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's because you have standards, you know, the quality of that compared to what you actually yeah, can. Because I'm looking around at Mike Wilbon exactly. and all these other oh, yeah, columnists that I, and they're killing. Yeah. It. I'm like, I want to write like that. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, and there was a lot to learn as a columnist. That's a different. What's the toughest thing about being a columnist? Um, for me, the toughest thing mm-hmm. was not establishing an opinion. To me, it was more kind of um, craft-related things, how to mm-hmm. structure it, how to give a sentence a little more pop, how to um, mm-hmm. how to not back into my opinion, just mm-hmm. say what it is. Like, it was just—I had a great editor, a guy named John Cherva, who um, was amazing and patient and worked with me. Mm-hmm. And um, I think without him and without— uh, the fact that, you know, I was in Orlando um, and even it was a really good paper, a really good paper for writers because I was the third columnist. I wasn't the one who was out front. You know, the lead columnist was a guy named Mike, uh, Mike Miyake. So he was their guy writing three times a week. He was, mm-hmm. you know, every local paper has the sports column and, he's, and he was that guy. And so I was lucky because I was a little bit under the radar and I could work through some growing pains and really figure out. Uh, how to create something memorable. What is the biggest difference between reporting a sports, like reporting on a game and writing a column about it? Okay, so... So tell me the the real difference. So the the game story, um, which I think has kind of died a death in the internet age, but... uh, The the game story is that it's pretty much the nuts and bolts. How did this team win or how did they lose, depending mm-hmm. on, you know, what perspective you're covering this from. And, you know, you, uh, you at, at least me, I would sit there, you do play-by-play, especially like, say, a game like basketball. It's a game mm-hmm. of runs. It's so true. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Yeah. But, you know, you write something like, you know, uh, such a, Team X went on a 22 run, mm-hmm. you know, fueled by Jarvis's Jones. Uh, you know, 13-point fourth quarter. Like, you write pretty much— Mainly like, giving people a feel for how the game went. How the game went, the how it was objective. won, the tone, right. um, what was at stake. Okay. And then you talk to players and coaches afterwards, and they help to put this all into context. When you're a columnist, you have to put a, an opinion on that. This team lost because they don't have any heart. This team okay. won because— um, you know, at the end of the day, this is their best player. And when it was a big moment, he showed up. It's just a little more forceful. So you start with a premise. Yes. And you write around that premise. Yeah. And then you construct your beginning, middle, and end. And the game is evidence of your premise. Correct. And okay. the thing that is, and realize, you know, you're on deadline. And so um, if you got like a 9 p.m. college basketball game with 5 billion commercials and 20 million media timeouts, you are just like, please, God, let there be a blowout. <laughs> right. Well, the deadline in your profession is crazy, right? It is. It's also I mean, useless. you're writing as something's happening almost, right? Yeah. In and some instances. Yeah. Oh, no, right. you totally. I mean, right. I, one of the game. I'll never forget this game because um, it may have been, honestly, the shittiest deadline writing I've ever done. <laughs> but uh, when Miami and Ohio State played that epic 2001 um, national title game mm-hmm. that went to several overtimes, the game was not over till 1.30 in the morning. Yeah, that was amazing. That was an amazing game with Maurice Claret and, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's right. one of the greatest. Maurice Claret. Yeah, Maurice Claret, uh-huh. Craig Krenzel at quarterback. Back for yeah. Ohio State. That's one of that Miami team might have been. I mean, you they're in the conversation easily for one of the five greatest teams of all time, yeah. right? With Willis McGahee. I mean, this is a team that did not lose. Yeah. And that game was amazing. And but it killed every writer there because, you know, first the earliest thing that w- the crazy thing about this game is that it wound up, this wound up being a total sidebar. The fact that, you know, early in the game, Willis McGahee. 
he got hit in his knee. Uh-huh. And his knee, I swear, went from when we were in Tempe, Arizona. He got hit so hard in his knee, I thought his knee was in Albuquerque. Uh, it's one of the worst injuries I've ever seen. I was like, pop. that guy's yeah. never playing again. Uh, Helmet right on it. It was ooh. like, oh, it was brutal. And he was a projected first-round pick, yeah. you know, considered to be arguably the best running back in the draft. And just in that moment, it was like his career might be over. You know, that's what a lot of people were thinking. That was a sidebar. That's how good that game was. It ends on a controversial passing, you know, non-pass interference or a pass interference call, I believe. And so it just, that's what you, the swing of emotions that people are watching go through, Mm -hmm. sports writers go through too, not necessarily from rooting for anybody. You know what we're rooting for? Please let this game be over so I can actually put this story into some kind of context. But Every, you know, it seemed like every second it was a different villain and a different hero. Mm -hmm. And so those are really hard game stories to write. And especially if you're a columnist. Right. It's sort of like, you know, you can have a thousand opinions. Yeah. So the art of writing a game story or the art of writing a column on deadline, unappreciated. I completely agree. And, like, how do you decide if you said sometimes there are different opinions you can have? How do you decide which one is the one to go with? Because, like, in joke writing— there are jokes that are just out there sometimes, you know, or, or sometimes you'll come up with something. Oh, this is funny. And you realize five other people have come up with the same joke <laughs> because sometimes jokes exist. You know, it's just it's time to make this joke about Trump. It's just time. And everybody senses that. I can't explain it. You know, and you feel like, oh, nobody. This is going to be great. And then you do. It's like, mm. yeah. so many times I like can joke writing, especially in late night television. You have to go past the first impulse and you have to dig a little deeper. What's my real opinion on this as opposed to what's the obvious joke? You know, especially uh, when you're competing in that. So when you're dealing with your opinion about something, like Tiger's done as an opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, an, an opinion th- I had. <laughs> well, a lot of people had, right. you know. But what's the deeper story, you know? Or or do you, do you weigh the different opinions and that type of thing? Or is it, like, clear to you what that opinion is when you're writing a column? Well, um, you know, I, I, I think the example you gave about joke writing— it's literally the same thing yeah. when it comes to formulating your opinion. Where people are sharing that out mm, there. Well, yeah. well, you just have to push past it. And mm-hmm. and what I like to do when I write columns is, like, I don't read other columnists who have written about the same thing. Because yeah. there are certain national events that everybody's going to be writing about exactly. it. Like, I imagine that because this recently happened as the taping of this podcast, I know it did happen. There was a thousand opinions about California's fair play. Yeah, I want to um, ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, act or yeah. whatever about, mm-hmm. you know, college athletes finally being right. able to make money off their name and likeness. There's a billion opinions about that already. Right. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, how do I feel about this? Yes, I agree or no, I don't. Why not? Is there some nuance within the why not mm-hmm. that I can focus on as opposed to writing the same, oh, this is why athletes should be paid. They're exploited, this and right. that and that. Um, or, and this is where me being at the Atlantic gives me kind of a special privilege. I don't have to chime in on everything. Yes. And so I have not written about that. That's a that. luxury. Yeah, it's yes. a luxury. But right. when you're in newspaper, you don't get that luxury. Right. Because you have to produce. You're on a schedule. You have deliverables. You know, yeah. if you're the columnist that has to write Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something's got to be in that space Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah, somebody who did a nightly show, literally. You know how it is. <laughs> part of what you do is reactive Mm -hmm. And you have less time to be contemplative about something. So you have to rely on all your skills and your complete skill set to just trust what that thing is in the moment, you know, and just go for it and dig deeper, you know. Yeah. I Um, mean, I've I've uh, had—it does get tough when you're writing a column off a national event because, like, Super Bowl columns. Right. Like, those are tough because everybody is—you got 100 million people watching this game. You have, you know— 
hundreds of media members there. Mm-hmm. The you can, uh, and especially if you're on deadline, you could dig and search and do all this. But odds are, most of what you write will have been covered by somebody or be an exactly. opinion uttered by somebody. You right. just hope that in the sameness of this opinion, that yours is better. That yours yeah. is written better or it gets to people, resonates differently with people. Or you can find just something, talk to a different person, you know, catch Russell Wilson in the hallway. Like something that will mm-hmm. bring this column to life a little differently. Yeah, the other two things I'll bring up, there's the scoop, which you just kind of mentioned and there's the angle, <laughs> you know, and those are two interesting things. Like, who's got the best angle, and who's really got the scoop? Correct. Or something. So, how important is that in the column writing? Also, uh, it, it's important because uh-huh. people have to understand. How it. hard is it, by the way? Oh, it, it's yeah. difficult. But I, I, I tell this to younger journalists all the time. Just because you're giving your opinion doesn't mean it shouldn't be reported. Right? You right. have to report a column mm-hmm. um, because you may come with a premise and say, okay, you know. I think um, Team X's defense uh, n- uh, needs to be better or isn't better because their best player isn't performing up to standard. So then you go talk to a coach, and the coach might say, mm-hmm. I got some film to show you that shows you that even though he may not have the same stats that he did last year or in previous years where he's more productive, that it's really about the things happening around him and not about him. You might be like, oh, so maybe my, is my opinion too harsh? Okay, show me what you got. And then it's like, and should I believe it? And should I believe it? Right, because you're being spun. Right? You might be being exactly. spun. They might be trying to take the heat off exactly. their guy. Exactly. And so it's sort of like you still have to report out what your opinion is to yeah. make sure you're not just coming up with some bullshit. Right. And also, to be fair, I mean, to be honest, because, um, you know, you don't want to, I, my, my, uh, my entire sort of mantra was always, I'm never going to put something in print or for that matter, say something on television about an athlete that I would not say to their face. Right. Cause they're always, it does seem to be, uh, <sighs> this, um, relationship that can be kind of contentious sometimes between, Reporters who are giving their honest opinion, honest, quote unquote, you know, which can be kind of harsh sometimes. Yeah. And now we live in the age of Twitter where athletes can clap back sometimes. Yeah, but I, but I actually think today's athletes, um, the one thing I miss, I think, about that reporter subject dance or reporter athlete dance is that I think, um, you know, and I want to make it sound like old woman yelling at cloud. Mm-hmm. If you cover a team, especially if you're with them a whole season, there is a different relationship that develops in the sense of like you get to know guys you get Mm -hmm. to know their families they get to know you a little bit there'll be times they're not going to agree with you times you won't agree with you know you'll go back and forth it may be times they may cuss you out and not speak to you for two weeks and that's cool but you know you sort of get over it and 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 you make it work these days because athletes have their own platforms Mm -hmm. and because they don't you know they can skip the media and just go straight yeah, they to don't the, need the media. They don't need the media mm-hmm. to get out their message or to build their brand. They do to some degree, but mm-hmm. it's just not like how it used to be. That sort of dance has been lost. So I understand that guys now don't necessarily trust the media as much as maybe in, in years past or, um, you know, why they're more hesitant uh, to give exclusives to reporters or, you know, this sort of thing. It, it just takes a certain um, level of delicacy that's just not there all that being said, because they are exposed, I think, to much harsher opinions from fans. And that that velvet rope that used to exist yes, it's direct. is not there. It's yes. direct. Guys are a lot more sensitive now because right. these athletes that are coming up, you know, somebody like me, I'm just a technology or a social media immigrant. Mm-hmm. They were born into it. Right. And so they have a 
totally different sensibility. It actually means something to them. Mm. So I can understand, as crazy it may seem to other people, why Kevin Durant would have a burner account. Right, responding. I was just going to say that. Right? Yeah, respond, because he grew up in right. it. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It means something to him. Their street corner is Facebook. Well, I won't say Facebook because old people are on Facebook. But mm-hmm. their street corner is Twitter and Snapchat. Like, right. Instagram Live, that's their street corner. And so, you know, whereas... When I was growing up, you know, me and the folks from the neighborhood, we would just roast each other on somebody's porch and it'd just be us that know about it. They got millions of people that's just like, ooh, we saw this, we saw this and that. And so they're much more sensitive. Yeah, it used to be people would would yell at the TV. Yeah. (laughs) And now now they can yell directly. The most they can do is like send a letter to the team or something (laughs) like that. And I'm like, I don't even know if they ever read that. that Yeah, exactly. Or somebody else's or. Exactly. But they would never have this sense of like, oh, these people hate me or love me or whatever. But now they know immediately in real time. That people either love them or people can't stand them or yeah. what the mood is. Here's a question I have for you. I, um, I've always wondered about this in sports. Like, how do you, what is the nature of a source? Like, and how do you manage a source? Because, like, especially, like, I'll watch a first take or something like that, and, and sometimes you'll see the the behavior of the person just get a little different when they're talking about something from a source, like they're protecting someone's identity or that type of thing. Tell me about that that world well, of, that's of a, sources. That's a cornerstone of journalism mm-hmm. is that you protect your sources. Mm-hmm. But you also know in source development that every source has an agenda. Mm. So there's a story that they want out there mm-hmm. that either that helps them um, form their own narrative. So you mm-hmm. have to be, even with sources you trust, who are telling you good information— you always have to ask the extra question of why are they telling me this information <laughs> and uh-huh. why me? Why did they pick me to tell mm. this information and what's the message they're trying to work out? And, yeah, it can work for you for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you know, agents often leak contract information, mm-hmm. right, or leak the idea that several teams are interested in my, you know, client. It was, okay. Tell me how—this is what I want to know because mm. you use the word leak. Yeah. Okay. So— how does leaking work? Because leak <laughs> leak is said, but I'm like, wait, let's go back. Nobody ever explains leaking because it's not like somebody just puts it out on Twitter. Somebody has to talk to someone. Oh, yeah. So there has to be a direct saying of something. Totally. And technology makes it How so does much that easier. Work? So does the agent call the reporter? Yep. And, and do, are they cagey when they're saying, like, do they say, this may or may not be going on right now? Do they use language like that? Or do they say, okay. It depends on. Okay, nigga. Yeah. Here's what's going on. <laughs> Let me tell you, the, LeBron is not going there. That motherfucker's going to Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, is it that type of conversation? I mean, his camp is a little tighter. Um, <laughs> right. But there's, you know, there's definitely like any any superstar athlete, there's definitely narratives that they want out there and they want uh-huh. pushed and they'll tell you stuff on the side like, hey, you know, maybe this was it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it depends on the relationship. The better the source relationship, the less the bullshit you hear. It's it's not so much a deep throat, follow the money. No, you know, no, no, it's not that. <laughs> Some of it is just like they'll they'll tell you straight out. You know, they'll be like, "Look, such and such got fired because wow. he did this." You know, like one of the stories that's going on right now is we're taping this. I don't know if you saw this, but the L.A. Sparks, right? So no, Candace, I don't know so funny. Candace Parker, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the WNBA sem- semifinals is that, and she was, you know, she's one of their best players, and she was benched, and uh, she only played eleven minutes in that game, and everyone's like, "Well, what the hell happened?" Derek Fisher's the coach of the Sparks. For those who don't know, Mm-mm. so then it comes out yesterday. <laughs> I'm suspicious, You're right, right? You're already suspicious. I'm already You're suspicious. like, why would Candace Parker only be playing eleven yeah. minutes in a um, you know season deciding game? So then it comes out that you know the 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 Sparks GM 
went on some tirade before that happened and was, you know, dropping inbox everywhere, cussing everybody out. Like, it's a whole thing now. So now it's like drama everywhere. Just like, what? What happened? So, of course, somebody, clearly a player inside that locker room, they got called a nigga, don't, <laughs> you know, said like, hey, this is what happened. Oh, my God. Right? And yeah. so it just has blown up. But those are the things, those are the things that happen, man. Like, athletes, they will tell you, you know, if you have a good enough relationship with them, they'll tell you what the coach said. They'll uh-huh. be like, look, let me tell you why this really went down. Uh-huh. Is that, and and a lot of times the backstory is stuff you can't even print. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It'll be stuff like, yo, so really what happened? He hollered at his girl on the weekend. <laughs> like the whole swaggy piece. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, like, it's, it's like shit you can't even make right, up. Right, right. Like if I could, honestly, I could write an entire book just based on. Things, <laughs> just based off things um, that happen on the court or beefs that happen because somebody slept with somebody they wasn't supposed to. Right. Like, and so these are things you wind up finding out and you're like, I can't put that in print. But at least now I know what happens. Right. But leaking wise, like people text you or again, if you have like a good relationship with them, they'll call you. If it's some super sensitive information, they definitely calling you because they don't want that shit on the text. <laughs> right. They don't want, a, they right. Don't want the, the uh, they, evidence. They right. don't want the evidence yeah. to be there. The Depending on the nature of the story, it might yes. be a leaked document. Like right. now they'll just, they'll take a picture of it, be like, I told you, you know, here's what it is. They want to have the right of denial. Yes, they right. do. And mm-hmm. now, you know, they have apps where um, like one of the ones, I know a lot of reporters are on, um, I feel like I'm giving away a secret, but whatever. Yeah, um, that's what we're here for. It's an app called Confide and it's nice. a text messaging app and your text message disappears after a few seconds. They had something called Tiger Text <laughs> years ago when Tiger was in all that. <laughs> See what I'm and it, it was hilarious and uh, your text would disappear after yes. and it would be gone from the server and everything. So too. a lot of yeah. uh, reporters use this. Um, I don't know how prevalent it is in the sports world, but for sure, it's a ton of political reporters on Confide. A ton. It has to be. Yes. And so that's how you're sort of, they're protecting themselves, you're protecting yourself, you know, to some degree and you, you know, you have the information. But yeah, and like they, they leak stuff all the time and I know people are often like, well, uh, yeah, I don't understand why they would do it. You'd be surprised who loves being known as a leak. Like, as soon as they see sources told Adam Schefter, like, they know that information is them. They are proud. I'm telling you. A lot of them are like, yep. I created a news story. Like, they kind of get off so on it. you can kind of rely on those people. Oh, yeah, for sure. For a lot of things. Yeah, right? I mean, you, you know, you knew there's a there's a certain pattern. Like, when I was covering the beat, um, yeah, the head coach, yeah, head coaches do leak stuff, I'm sure, like, to their benefit or whatever. But the best sources are never the people. The best sources are, like, you know, um, assistants, assistants who want to be coordinators, so they want their names somebody out there. Somebody that's salty. Yeah, oh, yeah. or somebody that's, yeah, somebody that's salty. A True. ambitious. Yeah. Or ambitious. That's uh-huh. probably more like it. Um, mm-hmm. Administrative assistants, mm. definitely know it. Like, get to know the people in the office. because trust court. They right. will tell you all of it. And then if it's a particular athlete, you know, it's like, you know, his boy or his, like, they'll tell you everything <laughs> that you need to know. And sometimes the athletes themselves, like, depending on, you know, there's a lot of athletes who, um, you know, who are really honest and have good relationships with the media. And they'll, they'll tell you what's going on, especially if they feel like that they're getting wronged yeah. or that people are having unfair the story. criticism. Right. They want to they want their story out there. So I am shocked how uh, in today's day and age, like the whole Kawhi Leonard coming to the Clippers story, how there was a wall around. I have that. no idea how that how, happened. how that can happen in today's <laughs> day and age. I mean. Yeah, for those who don't amazing. know, Sir Kawhi Leonard, uh, who played with the Toronto Raptors, arguably one of, you know, 
definitely top three players in basketball right now. Won the championship, you know, and he was kind of coy about where he was going to go. And with all, whenever this stuff is going on, there's always stories coming out. Some are true, some are not true. You know, I think some kind of want to lead you down a certain road, you know, to get. But there wasn't anything coming out that seemed like a reliable information. It was all conjecture. And when it came out, what he did, reporters were saying, what the fuck just <laughs> happened? I've never like, seen reporters react like that. Yeah. Like, how could we not know this? Yeah. Everybody was tricked. And some of it has to do with Kawhi's personality. Uh-huh. Um, I often forget what he sounds like because I'm just like, is he? Who does an impression of Kawhi Leonard? <laughs> Nobody, because we don't know what he sounds his, like. The impression is his facial it's expression. It's his laugh. Right. Yes, or, yes, his, yes, exactly. or his like, weird smile or right. baby. Like, it's like, it's I don't most, even know what his voice is. Uh, you are, he doesn't do endorsements, really. No. You know? <laughs> he doesn't, so... He's he, the Sphinx right now, you know, playing basketball. He, I mean, he's very singularly focused. He has a pretty tight circle. And as far as I know, there's not, like like not like a lot of reporters who are, like, in with him. Does his uncle work for him? Yeah, his uncle does, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah his uncle is kind of like his guy or whatever. He's going to say something his sister. Sorry. So it's like, you know, he... So he's got a tighter circle than mm. most kind of superstars. So mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I never would have ever imagined that something like that in 2019 with all the social media, you would have thought they would have saw him meeting with somebody right. or anything and nothing. and nothing. And look, these things. And no one from the people that he met with leaked, which no. is extraordinary. It is. Right. But I, at least I understand why that Except didn't for happen. Magic Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. But that wasn't until after the He's fact, the right? Most exposed leaker <laughs> in the history. <laughs> Although that wasn't until after the fact, That's right? True. And yeah. so he kept the lid on it right. whenever he had his um, his entry point into that whole process. But uh, the teams, it makes sense because if you feel like what might be the difference between you getting him and not getting him, you running your mouth, you're not gonna say anything, mm. nothing. But people but he- around him, I'm shocked. But he controlled that, which is interesting. It is. You know, he set that rule down and people followed it, which is also extraordinary. And I, and I, look, I'll say this. Yeah. I mean, when when LeBron, um, when he came, well, not so much when he came back to Cleveland, because I think people kind of got a little bit of an indication, but not up until the last minute. And certainly yeah. when he went to Miami, people, I mean, the conjecture was all over the place. Yeah. And it wasn't until the day of, I think it was Chris Broussard, uh, who used to work at ESPN now at Fox, who I heard... I recall him being the first person that said, I don't know why, but I think he's going to Miami. And mm. this was just hours before the actual announcement was made. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think he just guessed? No, I think he probably has some intel. You know, mm-hmm. Chris is somebody who's been in the league, covered it forever. Yeah, and he's A lot from of sources right. from Cleveland mm-hmm. probably knows. The the one that was shocking was LeBron returning to Cleveland. That was shocking. And it was yeah. just like, really? After Comic, Comic Sans, Dan Gilbert? <laughs> After he lost his shit when you left, the owner. And it was just... And how well Pat Riley treated him. And how well Pat Riley treated him. And and then, of course, then you find out a little bit more after the fact. But it's pretty impossible to keep something under wraps these days. Yeah. Let me ask you about some issues out there. Mm -hmm. Because I can't have Jamel Hill on without going (laughs) over there. And I appreciate you stopping by here. There's so many issues. But the first one I wanted to get your take on uh, is the Kaepernick issue. You know, like where... Because I have so many different opinions about this, you know. And and I... I think there's confusion out there, too, about how people should even feel about this at this point. You know, my my personal opinion is that I, I think the NFL is not the proper target to address 
what's happening racially in America. It's kind of a non sequitur to me. It's fine to use your platform to say something, but the NFL to me is not the target of that. Like it's not the NFL's not out arresting young black men, that type of thing. You know, so I always felt there was a bit of a non sequitur in the like to me, it should I don't think what was going on is so much a protest, so much as a calling attention to. That's exactly you know? what it was. And, and I wish yeah. there. And to me, I don't know why the NFL never wanted to sit down and say, "Look, how can we help this? Maybe we could wear black armbands." You know, you know, once a game. Like, you know, I always said, if this was about breast cancer, nobody would have been upset. You know, but some people disagreed with his premise. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of my opinion on that. So I think all the fallout from there. Starts from kind of a false premise. Yeah. So that's why it's hard for people to know what side to be on with some of them. Well, it, it's... Does that um, sound... No, cool? no. I think what you yeah. said is entirely accurate. And it, it really is in line with something I've said as well, is that it was an individual choice right. that became a movement, and it wasn't meant to be a movement. Yes. Right? Right. It was meant to, just as you said... My own personal... This is my own personal This is my own thing. personal choice. Right. I want to bring... He wanted... Reporters have to ask him after the game, hey, why'd you do that? So he could say, as he did, Mm -hmm. you know, why he was doing it. And he was very eloquent when he said it. And he said it repeated many times. Do you think he didn't intend for it to blow up the way that Uh, he did? No, there's no way he could have anticipated Mm -hmm. that it would. Because then what happens is other players who felt the same way he did decided, you know what? I'm going to kneel, too, Mm -hmm. because I believe in the same things that he does. Well, first he sat, right? Yes, first he sat. And then he was the backstory um, that people— Unfortunately, it's either gotten lost or they just kind of want to be intellectually dishonest about it, is that it was a former Army Ranger, Nate Boyer, Mm -hmm. um, who told him, who also played in the NFL, who told him that it was more respectful to kneel because you kneel for the fallen. And that's why he stopped sitting and went to kneeling. So he knelt out of respect to this after he asked about what is, what's the what's the best way for me to do that? I don't want to disrespect. Yes, because uh, you know, they okay. had, um, you know, they they talked and he understood Colin's viewpoint mm-hmm. and, you know, really has become in his own right. Nate Boyer has become someone who has been passionate about these issues. Mm-hmm. And so he was the one that told him, like, no, you should you should take a knee. That'll be better. And Colin agreed. And that's what he started doing. And then next thing you know, this thing took on a life of its own. Um, and so he wanted to use his position, his visibility, his platform being the NFL to in, not necessarily instruct, but at least enlighten people about, um, you know, police brutality and criminal justice reform. That was pretty much the beginning and end of it. And people are just like, oh, well, what was the action? I mean, Colin had started doing social work justice work for a while. Mm-hmm. So action was always accompanied with his method of bringing awareness to the issues that he cared about. And it's also why now I find the NFL's interest in suddenly in social justice issues to be a little fake. I know they're throwing money at it and I get it, mm-hmm. but it's weird because of what you said about the premise. It's like the NFL does not run the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. They have nothing to do with why unarmed Black people are being killed by the police and there being no justice. So to see them in that space, and they're only in that space because they feel like it will quiet the players and will stop them from protesting, it's a very bizarre um, intertwining to me. Yeah, it's a tough one because it's not like the NFL has a redress for this. Like, it's not a labor issue, in other words, you know, that the NFL is directly connected to this. So 
it's kind of a tough one. What are you asking for from well, the NFL? Well, the, 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 right. the only thing the NFL mm-hmm. really should be on the hook for, and again, if they want to contribute to these issues in these communities and, and help underserved communities, I'm not, I'm not um, negating that or saying that they shouldn't. Um, the NFL should absolutely be on the hook for what they did to Colin Kaepernick. What that's did, what they did to. That's what they need to be on the hook for. What did the NFL do to Colin? I mean, they Kaepernick? have they have killed his career, his NFL career, and mm-hmm. and the the evidence is there. They don't write checks to people they don't feel like they owe, and so they wrote a check to him and Eric Reed, who sued, uh, who filed a labor grievance. And mm-hmm. this is what I I think is important to stress to people who criticize Colin Kaepernick for quote taking the money. Well, one, you don't beat the NFL. Tom Brady, face of the league, you know, greatest quarterback of all time. He couldn't even beat the NFL. Mm-hmm. He sat down when he got suspended four games for Deflategate. He tried to fight it. City Hall won. He sat down, served the four-game suspension. The fact that they chose to settle with Colin Kaepernick says everything about what they know their real guilt was. Mm-hmm. They felt like he had a case. When the arbitrator didn't throw it out, they were just like, oh, shit, we're and, in trouble. And the case was concerning collusion to keep him out to of To keep football? him out of an NFL job. And it was a collusion case, which is a labor grievance. It was something that they settled, though. There wasn't like, was there something, did he win it or was there a settlement? It was a settlement. Okay. So it didn't obviously go all the way right. to completion, which is very common. Where, where evidence is required. Yeah, it was very common in that. Right. But I think it's been known for a while now that they had no intention of no team has any intention of ever calling Colin Kaepernick again. Mm-hmm. And the president, frankly, had a lot to do with it. I mean— Yeah, when Trump inserted himself, that was so ridiculous. It was. Yeah, and that the, kind of divide—now people had to take sides that really had nothing to do with football, you know? Yeah, and not only—one yeah. of the few issues that Donald Trump has been able to gain widespread support for was Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. And he was going to use that. Yeah, he did. And yeah. he did. I mean, that's why he mm-hmm. kept saying his name at rallies and— saying, you know, calling NFL players sons of bitches. And as we later uh, found out, and this was a recent story, is that he was calling NFL owners and telling them, you know, basically that if they didn't play ball and if they signed Colin Kaepernick, there would be repercussions. Wow. So essentially the NFL decided, because the NFL has a lot of business interests Mm -hmm. that they need government approval for. Mm-hmm. And they decided the best thing to do, if we have to write one check, that's better than sacrificing all these billions. So right. we have chosen to sacrifice Colin Kaepernick for the greater good of our league. And for that, they should always pay. For that, they should always be on the hook for. For that, they should always be embarrassed about. So so let me ask you this. Does the NFL, because collusion has a certain aspect to it. There's the silent collusion, you know, of kind of an understanding of something. And then there's direct collusion where you're actually ordered not to do something something is in writing. Are you saying that the NFL directly colluded with owners? And when we say NFL, do we mean Roger Goodell? Um, do you think like he talked to owners specifically and said, look, I don't know what you think about Colin Kaepernick, but no way you can have him in league. Or do you think NFL owners independently and somehow at the same time said, I ain't have that nigga on my team. <laughs> you know, he's, I mean, people are yelling about this too divisive. Sorry, don't want that over here. Well, um, what's the old adage? What's understood need not be said. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, NFL owners, you know, all 30 of them got in the room and said, just so we're clear, nobody's hiring Colin Kaepernick, right? right. Okay, cool, good. Also, we have but to. But they did say that about blacks in baseball. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> right. That is true. That's what I mean. That that's direct collusion. That is direct collusion. Right. This was, um, I think, indirect 
collusion. I think in circles, those conversations, or in pockets, rather, those conversations mm-hmm. were happening. And people have to understand, the uh, Roger Goodell works for the owners. Okay. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yes, he works for the owners. But they actually, the teams pay him, right? Uh, he is or paid. Or is there a fund that comes? He's paid through the league. And okay, so, um, which obviously has a great deal to do with the owners. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Goodell works for them, you know. And so, here's the, here's the thing is that I think the owners, once they saw that it was it was politically divisive. They wanted Trump to stop talking about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at a time where NFL ratings were down. I do not think one plus one equals two in that case. I think there was a lot of reasons NFL ratings were Absolutely. down. Absolutely. It had nothing to do— That happens with all sports, too. It does. And mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick, you know, it had, you know, Peyton Manning retired. It was a whole ton yeah, of things. most people weren't even paying attention to that. Right? Correct. And mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't have a game that's four hours long in an age where millennials <laughs> right. can't pay attention for more than 10 minutes. I don't know. But um, there was a lot of things that happened. And so they're looking at ratings. They're looking at their bottom line. They're hearing people yell and claim that they're not going to watch the NFL anymore if they see any kneeling players. And it was just kind of the perfect storm for some bullshit. And Mm -hmm. so essentially they made a business decision. And Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, the New York Times, when the players, the the players who were, you know, also kind of protesting and had joined the fight with Colin and uh, the Players Coalition is what they're called, like uh, and the players who are doing social justice work, when they met with the owners, you know, those conversations wound up being leaked. Your favorite word. Absolutely. <laughs> and I felt uh, the New York Times obtained some. It was, it was probably magic. <laughs> <laughs> and New York Times obtained, you know, some audio and just based off what was starting to be reported, because some of these things were coming out in depositions of Collins collusion case. Mm. And you saw that's why I think the NFL uh, wrote that check because they didn't want any more of that stuff to come out. Mm-hmm. And it showed just like how it, how these owners thought. And uh, the late Bob McNair, who owned the Texans, if you recall, was a huge controversy because one of those conversations that got leaked to the media was when he said, because uh, I think he had a, a, a player who was outspoken about Colin, uh, Colin Kaepernick or a player who was kneeling. I can't exactly remember what the case was. Or just generally talking about the issue. He said... He didn't want the inmates running the asylum. Mm-hmm. So he called players inmates, and that set off, yeah. you know, his his best player, DeAndre Hopkins, walked out of practice when that, that report dropped. Mm-hmm. They didn't want any more of that, right? Because if those conversations come out about what they're really saying about players and Colin Kaepernick behind closed doors, then we got ourselves a problem. Yeah. And it's not just, you know— People who are Trump supporters who are pissed off about Colin Kaepernick, suddenly you got a whole lot of black people who are real upset. And, you know, black people know to some degree about how people feel. But suddenly this becomes an all-out race war. And they certainly weren't trying to have that. It's interesting because there's there's this interesting thing that came up a year or two ago, and it has to do with the language. Um, Some of it is in what you said when you say inmates running the asylum. But I remember some players had a problem with the word owner. Yeah. Well, you, the, <laughs> I thought it was a bit over the top. The you NBA know. changed changed the lexicon it's because little, of that. That's a little crazy to me. Because <laughs> They're governors now. Yeah, but it's still, to me, it's going, it's looking way too much to find something. It's like, trust me, this is not like slavery, guys. Tr- believe, trust me on this. <laughs> I'm happy to get a time machine and take you to what that actually, you know, was like. You know, well, This is it, not a plantation. I understand you want to use those terms. I don't think those are fair words to use. And I understand the feelings of that. But 
to me, that can alienate fans, your average working class fan. It's like, hold on, you know, you can't be making millions of dollars and call something a plantation. Well, the, the problem, you know? though, is that I think— Even though they can agree with the feelings associated yeah, with it. Yeah, well, I think know? what the players are speaking to is feeling dehumanized. And mm-hmm. regardless of how much money you make, you know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think fans themselves, I mean, they also are kind of the, the worst perpetrators of that. Uh, especially mm-hmm. now with fantasy football, you know, to walk around and you hear people talking about, yeah, well, I, I own such and such. They feel very <laughs> entitled. And it's like, do you? I'm like, just because you put right. in $10 to your fantasy league, right? you know, you don't have a right to, you know, cuss out a player on Twitter because he's not available. It's, it's like fantasy in the title. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah. like, hello. Um, but I, I think they were more or less speaking to that. And mm-hmm. I could understand to some degree the, the discomfort with it. Right. Because and Donald Sterling didn't help. You know, Correct. when it comes out with his types of attitudes yeah, and everything, and it's which like, are very much in that vein. And, you know? and even though, you know, we know the boss is writing the checks and sure. who generally owns this operation, mm-hmm. I think it was just a level of discomfort that's there. And the fact that, you know, in the NFL, you know, you got players that don't have guaranteed contracts. Mm-hmm. And so that dynamic, and I, I know people are just like, oh, I wish I could be paid as much as they are to, quote, play a game. I think it, it just—we uh, constantly undervalue what athletes have to do to be professional athletes. Mm-hmm. People think, and especially when it comes to black people, because you can hear it in the language, right? You know, when a white guy is great at, you know, a sport, it's because he intellectually got himself there. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he's so smart. Or, you know, he—my um, uh, favorite is when he's, like, got a high motor. You know, those, like, mm-hmm. little cold words that they use with white athletes. They don't never tell them they can just be—they might just be a great—there's a lot of, obviously, great white right. athletes. But they always make it seem like intellectually that's how they wound up in that spot. Right. Where with black athletes, oh, y'all just hit the genetic lottery. Yeah. That's all it is. Like, you didn't have or, to work that hard. <laughs> you LeBron James. You were born—you were born 6'8", 270. Or, you didn't have to work on shit. Or when they do call them smart, they qualify and says, his basketball IQ is off the charts. <laughs> right, you're not why, smart. Is it, why does it have to be basketball you're IQ? You're not smart with everything. Yeah, why can't just it just be it, IQ? It just be why IQ. does it gotta be so it's narrow? Like, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, oh, his football IQ. Yeah. Oh, we don't God. know about the rest of the IQ and where that is, <laughs> but we know specifically yeah. with this. Have you seen his dancing IQ? Oh my <laughs> <It's> God. terrible. <laughs> right? So there's all these qualifiers. Yeah, when did IQ get in this narrow lane? <laughs> no, yeah. it, 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 like, it's just like you got IQ as something. It probably applies to a lot of things. Yeah. But that's the whole point is that because black athletes have always been seen as the labor, yes. regardless of what they're getting paid. Like, look, right. if LeBron James is making $28 million a year, what's Jeannie Buss making? Okay? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I always tell them, like, you know, I get that the but, numbers— But in fairness, all athletes have been treated that way. Yes, all right. athletes, it's yeah. Not, that's really not a black issue. I mean, you could go back for years and— I mean, we had black players come out, like Kurt Flood, you know, who yeah. was the instigator of all that. But all those athletes were experiencing that. He was just the the one who went out and fought it, you yes. know, and that type of thing. Yes. But the thing is, the face of the NFL and NBA is mainly a black face yeah, now, too. because they're the majority of the players. Exactly. And, so, uh, so that's where those conflicts come in. Well, but, and, but I will say this, though. The part that white— But, athletes, the, but a white players can get cut just as fast. Oh, easily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, contract, they, they yeah. also can, but they also, um, I think— to some degree, when it comes to seeing them outside of what they do, mm-hmm. they have a little easier time kind of navigating that. And I think because of the extra component of race, um, you know, black athletes forever have been not just used as a source of entertainment, but the moment that they show their humanity, the moment they show that, like, you can love my jump shot, but you got to get this blackness with it, then it becomes a problem, mm-hmm. which is why outspoken black athletes tend to 
face far more damaging repercussions mm-hmm. than those who do, don't say do anything. Do you think that's why Jordan kind of stayed away from that? Oh, yeah. Time? I mean, but, but I mean. He kind of, he, that was the the bargain that he said, Meh, I ain't mad at that bargain. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know. But or it just wasn't an issue. I'll say this. As time has gone on, I've seen Jordan's um, lack of participation in social issues in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some that there were so obvious. It was like, come on, man. Like mm-hmm. when uh, Harvey Gant ran against Jesse Helms. Mm-hmm. Jesse Helms is one of the most notorious racists. <laughs> it's like, dude, <laughs> is it that hard? Or not Jesse Helms. I'm sorry. Strom Thurmond. Yeah. I'm like, is it that hard to give right. camp- give money to a, a somebody running against Strom Thurmond? It's sure. like, dude, that's not that hard. Right. Nobody would blame you for doing that. But also, that <laughs> that is directly political. Yes, that, that is directly. So I kind of understand that, as opposed to a cause. Yeah, but it's right. also like an easy no, political. No, I know. It's easy. He just didn't want to get involved. <laughs> he just didn't want to get involved. I yeah, get that. Yeah, yeah. That being said, I do think the one where— I don't know if activism is the right word, but the blueprint that he gave black athletes in terms of becoming a global success. Absolutely. It helped, um, you know, help other athletes build generational wealth. Absolutely. Completely. I completely agree with that, that your success can be part and parcel of your brand that you own. You know, and not just something given to you by an owner of a team. Correct. You know, that you can control this thing, I mean, which so it. many players have done now from LeBron to, you know, even the way they have their companies now and the the way that they're extending themselves is really kind of inspirational for even young entrepreneurs, you know, and people that want to follow. I mean, Jordan being the face of Nike at a time where, I mean, there wasn't a lot of companies. And to have a stake in it. To have a stake in it. There wasn't a lot of companies dying to put um, you know, a dark-skinned black man with a yeah. bald head and make them the it's face of a, with a, of a billion-dollar company. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah that right. wasn't a thing. And so he made it. I mean, he was he became one of the most likable athletes in America. Yeah. So that, to me, was his, his legacy because all of a sudden it taught, you know, other uh, black athletes about how that they can become a brand. Mm-hmm. But I think LeBron is teaching them a different lesson, which is you can become— that same brand, that's, you can have that same Jordan appeal, but you can still call the president a bum. <laughs> Amazing. Um, thanks so much for talking about it. I do have one more question for you. Sure. I, I don't want to take a, too much of your time, but I feel like I could, we talk about so many issues. But you wrote an article recently that I wanted to ask you about. I just wanted to get your opinion on it, about um, college athletes and black athletes choosing HBCUs over what you call, quote-unquote, white colleges or whatever. I don't write the headline, people. Okay. Explain that. I was kind of— Did I throw you off a bit? You threw me off a little bit. Yeah. Well, they're they're called PWIs. PWIs, which means predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. But it's just in the headline, it said white institutions. So people kind of lost it. Like, what's a white institution? Well, with the exception of HBCUs, that's every other college. Exactly. Right. So it's kind of, you know— It's kind of, you know— it's yeah. like, all right, there's a reason why people in your industry call it Black Hollywood. Because it's understood that Hollywood is white, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of the same thing. Right. Um, but anyway, yes, I wrote— But I never say predominantly white Hollywood. No. That's it. Right. You never right. say predominantly white Hollywood. Correct. Um, but the fact that there is a Black Hollywood lets right. you know it's a white Hollywood. Correct. Aha! Right. <laughs> so— Right. Um, but yes, no, you don't say it, but it, for the purposes of this article, because I wanted people— to understand, like, okay, you have predominantly white institutions, they're your Tennessees, they're your, like, that's what those mm-hmm. are. Then you have historically black colleges and universities. So I, the premise of the piece was what would happen if 
some of the top tier high school talent in the country if they started to go to HBCUs, mm-hmm. funnel their talent and money there as opposed to going to these other institutions and how that could in many ways help to not just rebuild and revitalize HBCUs, but also, um, you know, really contribute to kind of bolstering black empowerment on a wide scale level. Um, you know, because even now, even though, you know, once obviously uh, there was desegregation, that kind of took a huge talent pool from HBCUs, not just with sports, but with pretty much everything, because mm-hmm. suddenly black people could go wherever they wanted. And, you know, as a result, a, a lot of the HBCUs have have faced very harsh financial conditions. And even still in, in today's America, with all these choices, they still present, you know, produce like 40 percent of black professionals. I mean, they what they contribute to the American workforce is in terms of the type of talent they produce is is pretty uh, unparalleled. I mean, there's, uh, you know, a black female presidential candidate who went to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. So that just, you know. Talking about Hillary? (laughs) (laughs) Kamala Harris, who went to Howard. Wait, was Elizabeth Warren? Hillary's last time. I thought I could see Elizabeth (laughs) Warren. You know, I could see her like Jackson State. Oh, I could see her there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Jackson State. (laughs) Jackson State or or Hampton. Maybe Spelman. Maybe Spelman, you're right. right. Um, Clark Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. (laughs) Those seem like Elizabeth Warren. You know, maybe that might be Mm -hmm. something. It's like, I have to match a presidential candidate. To which HBCU? Hilarious! I think they would have gone That's to. That's where they go. Yeah. 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 I, I, Bernie I, Sanders definitely went to Howard. You think he's a Howard guy? <laughs> oh, completely. He's East Coast. You know. Yeah, because if he, Bernie Sanders were black, I think he'd be a hotep. I think he totally would be a hotep. That's hilarious. Yeah, he would. I, I could see that out of him. I don't know where Joe Biden would go though. Mm. Probably. You know what? Joe yeah. Biden, Morehouse. He'd be a Morehouse dude. Yeah, because he'd be bragging about, yeah. I was here right after <laughs> yeah. King. Yeah, so, no, you're not the same age as King. What are you My bad, Morehouse guy. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. But he would totally be a Morehouse guy. Completely, completely. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Okay, all right. Plus, he'd love Atlanta, too, you know, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Too. Exactly. Right next to Spellman. Anyway, yeah. um, but no, I mean, that that was sort of the, the premise of the piece. And uh-huh. um, the reaction was, um, I knew the reaction would, you know, be big, but it was even bigger than I anticipated. And mm-hmm. I love being called a segregationist. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was new. So, so this is my question. Are you just imagining this, like, as a fantasy? You know, are you—is it a call to arms? Or are you, like, throwing a flare at HBCU saying, well, how can we save this type of thing? Like, where did this come from? Um, I think it came from the fact that, you know, to me— well, the original thought bubble was this. I saw a Washington Post— article a couple years ago where they were looking at pay for play as in paying college athletes. And what was interesting, though not surprising, because we know we live in two Americas, is the majority of white people are against college athletes being paid. Majority of black folks are like, yes, pay them. Mm -hmm. So I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, I know why that racial disparity, you know, would exist. But it put in my mind, I was like, you know, what's interesting, if that's the case, then that means that HBCUs are in a particularly interesting position to push this conversation forward. Mm. And maybe as a result of pushing this forward, they could actually kind of rebuild themselves by looking at black athletes as partners as opposed to the exploitive model that is there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the place where I should have pushed further in the in the piece that I wrote for The Atlantic is that maybe HBCUs, and this is this is not my idea, this is actually... Uh, I can't remember the name of the group off the top of my head. This is something that they have been putting out there for a while. HBCUs breaking off from the NCAA, creating their own pay-for-play model, and then there you go. 
Because it's only a matter right. of time before somebody does something like that. Absolutely. You know, and um, that's why what California did with enacting this legislation so that athletes can make their money off their name and likeness is so big. Well, it's interesting because that's not done through any sports arm. That's no. done by the government. Correct. Giving permission for it. For them to do it. Right. And so if you're a high school athlete and you're thinking about where to go and you're like, so let me get this straight. If I go to a California school, I'll be able to make some money as opposed to going to the SEC. Yeah. Let me sit, let me holler at USC. And by the way, I think a lot of the rules in college, and I've always felt this way. Um, I played sports growing up. <laughs> I actually grew up in a real sports town. And in fact, right down the street, um, and still one of my best friends is um, is Bill Duffy. We went to the same high school. He was a high school American. He played with Kevin McHale, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Big sports agent for you guys. <laughs> but sports was a big deal. But I always felt that the in NCAA rules about money and everything is only designed to punish poor people. Oh, I don't uh, think it's any question. If you can't have a dinner bought for you and, you know, a school has to give away championships because somebody bought you a dinner, go fuck yourself <laughs> in CWA. That's a crazy rule. No. It's crazy. Well, and it's not just about punishing poor people, which we certainly do in America overall and shaming them. Right. It's also about the fact that it's about greed. And, yeah. you know... Yes, you're going to have that. Right. And you're going to make all this yeah. money. Yeah. And, and they're, they're, mm-hmm. they've stupidly created an underground economy where they made it completely worthwhile for schools to cheat, for completely. players to take money. That's why... Absolutely. People have to remember when the, the NCAA... Whole black market. Yeah. The whole black market. When the NCAA was designed, it was never designed... Or in its early inception with the idea it will one day become a billion-dollar institution. Right. That was not what it was supposed to be. It sure. really was about amateur play. And there's and I think the idea of amateurism we've kind of evolved oh, from, too. First of all, it's, it's a lie. People don't care about it that much like they used to. I don't think so. And even I don't though, think so either. Even though I hear all these college—you know, college sports fans, God bless them, but sometimes some of y'all are the worst because— they have such emotional connections to their school, and I don't know what it is. And I don't know if this is—is is this cultural or is this regional, as they say. But for some reason, there's a group of fans who feel like they can be more invested in knowing everybody on the field plays for free. And I'm like, I don't understand That's this. Crazy. It's crazy. But you yeah. often hear from them saying, well, it'll be just like pro sports. So the fuck what? I mean, it's like, okay. Well, what's interesting, it's a very socialist idea. Mm. <laughs> the, the more American capitalist idea is why— why can't free an individual yeah. take advantage of the free market? Correct. If someone is taking is using their image and likeness, they should be rewarded for that. It would be more— And if they're not, that's kind of how the free market works. It would be more mm-hmm. understandable if, say, the general rule was that no college student, when you go to college, you're signing up all—you can't make any money outside of just going to college— that would be one thing. I mean, it would be crazy, but that would be one thing. But on their own campus, they're the only people not allowed to make money. Oh, yeah. If you have a dope, you know, cello, a, a dope cellist, they could go out and play at the Philharmonic and make a ton of cash. Exactly. And no one cares, right? Yeah. It's he, just in this particular group, select group of people, they yeah. have decided, nah, you can't make any money. I feel like once the Olympics said, we really don't give a fuck about amateurs anymore. Why should the, why should college say that? I mean, once the Olympics said that, why should anybody else care? Seriously, that was the that was really the 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 bastion of amateurism. The the yeah. the resistance that you hear and the debates that um uh, or or at least the pushback from the NCAA, which is essentially you know college presidents and athletics directors, mm-hmm. um, is all based off the fact they want to keep all the money. Maybe the more, um perfect analogy rather than using a slavery comparison is 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 <laughs> thank a, you very much. Know, thanks Larry for what, educating me is is more pimp to prostitute 
All right. Nice. See, I like that. That's more pimp to prostitute because Absolutely. prostitutes, pimps will tell you. She gotta go do her work. Got not only that, mm. when you ask a a, a pimp how much does she get paid, Ooh. nothing. Uh-oh. They will tell you nothing. Not that I know about these things. Not they mm. will tell you nothing. Uh-oh. Because the pimp is like, oh, I'll provide her clothing, housing, this, that. Right. So, nah, she gotta give all the money to me. Maybe you know I love you. There you go. So it's more <laughs> pimp to prostitute because right. the NCAA, they get the the, the billion-dollar CBS deal. They get right. all the, the money from the uh, ESPN and Fox, and yeah. they get to keep all the money, right? And so it just feels very disingenuous to me, especially when they act like they don't have the money. Meanwhile, I'm looking at— Or uh, that the money doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's right. like, okay. Or how about put the money in a trust then so when the person's out of, of college, course. they have access to And people to who want to say, well, mm-hmm. you know, what about smaller schools— oh, I'm sorry, is it a fair and equal playing field now? No. Mm-hmm. You already know that, no, Ball State does not have the budget of Alabama. There's right. a difference, okay? Right. And even when it comes to different sports, you know there's a difference. My argument on the likeness thing, at the very least, is that you might have, we've seen it, you might have a really popular college player who doesn't have a pro future, who's able, at least while they're in college, to make money off their own name Mm -hmm. and likeness. If they want to be in Augusta's vacuum commercial, let them be in that damn commercial. Who cares? And even for female athletes, if you're Simone Biles who went to Stanford, you can do an autograph signing. Like, there's some female athletes on campuses who can make some money because they're that popular. Yes, and it's creating a distinction between equal and fair. Correct. Just because it's fair doesn't mean it's going to be equal. Exactly. It's just fair. Right. Start with fair, Mm -hmm. and then you work your way up. See? We solved a lot of problems I know. Jamel, thanks so much for being here. I think the name of your next book is From Pimp to Prostitute, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I am writing a book, but I t- you are writing a book I about am, your memoirs or something. I right? am. I'm writing yeah. a memoir. It's not called that. That might give people the wrong I think idea. You should think about that title. <laughs> okay, alternate. I'll, I'll change. I'll be like, working Wait, title. From prostitute to pimp, because you want to oh, wind up true. being the pimp. That's right. Gonna, you don't want to work. You don't want to hustle backwards. Work backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to go from yeah, prostitute to pimp. Exactly. Upward mobility. <laughs> exactly. Jamel Hill is Unbothered, you guys. It's a great podcast, and please read her in the Atlantic. Everything is so provocative. I'm so happy that you're there. It's such a great place for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect home. They've been really, really great to me. Jamel Hill, thanks, Jamel. Thank you. Thank you.